Dean Radin is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and is an associated distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's an internationally renowned pioneer when it comes to research in the fields of consciousness and psi phenomena. Amongst the plethora of other publications, he's so far published hundreds of popular articles and nine books. Dean and his paradigm-challenging book, The Conscious Universe, The Scientific Truth of Psychic Phenomena, were a big part of inspiring this podcast to become what it is today. As always, we've taken the time to create timestamps, which can be found in the description below. So Dean, how and when did you first become aware of the reality of psi phenomena? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I would say that uh, I have been interested in the topic for a very long time, or probably as a preteen, as a result of, of reading uh, fairy tales and science fiction and that sort of thing. Um, when I was a teenager, I discovered that there was a discipline that studied, scientific discipline that studied these sorts of things. And so mm -hmm. that gave me a first inkling that maybe there was something going on. But I would say that uh, it was probably during graduate school where I started to do experiments and was getting interesting results. At the, and up to that point, by the way, I, I had never had any kind of psychic experiences. So it wasn't like I was trying to figure out something that happened to me. It was really being driven by curiosity. I've, yeah. I've always been curious about everything. So in graduate school, I started doing experiments. But after I graduated, after my doctorate, uh, when I was at Bell Laboratories at the time, then uh, uh, a lot of what I was doing at Bell Labs was intrinsically interesting. But there was a lot of leeway in terms of, of what we could do. Mm -hmm. Around, I would guess, maybe 20% of our time, we were able to do pretty much anything we wanted to. I'm sure management didn't particularly like that, but it was the nature of the projects that we were doing. So we, I was working a project typically between five and 25 other people. And oftentimes, you just had to wait for something to happen. So what are you going to sit in your hands? No. So I started doing experiments. Uh, psychic experiments at Bell Labs. And after a couple of years of that and getting consistently interesting results, that's what convinced me that there was really something going on. So I got to this through personal experimentation, scientific mm -hmm. experiments, and in still many ways, my primary psychic experiences have been in the laboratory. I've had personal experiences too. At least I've recognized them as, oh, this is what I've been studying. But that really wasn't the driver. It was laboratory work. Wow. And so you mentioned as well, you were really into it when you were young, but not in terms of the reality of it, but in terms of the allure. So how did how did that begin with that? Just, yeah, comics and TV and things like that. And Oh, yeah. It just kept it, you interested. Well, it's the equivalent of Harry Potter. Those kinds of books yeah. have been around for a very long time. And of course, they're... They stimulate the imagination, and like any kid, you know, you you read a lot of that stuff, and you, you're thinking after a while, that's amazing. I, and plus, could that possibly be true? Now, at the same time, my mom was doing yoga for for as long as I could remember. So we had books about yoga and the mystic masters of the East and things like that around the house, and I had been reading a lot. So I read about stories of yogis who supposedly had these same abilities, but they were presenting it as though this is real. Oh, there's a dog bark. <laughs> you called it. Yeah. 
So the, so the yogis and the mystics were talking about these phenomena as real. This is yeah. their experience. And then, of course, then there's a confusion that happens because here, this is a story. These people are saying this is actually true. And so, you know, early on, I was thinking, well, then what is what's really true? And since I don't experience it myself, how would I find out if it's true? Mm. So that's, I mean, in a sense, that's why I ended up in science, because for a lot of things, we, you know, our, our experience is limited in terms of what we can actually personally experience. But the, the world of books open an entire other universe. So yeah. naturally, you'd want to wonder, well, you know, what it would really be like to pitch a tent on the top of Mount Everest. I'm probably not going to do that, but, you know, you get kind of a sense of it. Yeah. And then you wonder, well, what is that really like? Well, so that that's what happened to me with the the mystics, the yogis, the psychics, all of that. What was your your mum's thoughts on kind of psychic psychic abilities? Obviously, if she had those books and and was into yoga and things like that, did she influence you in that way at all? We never talked about it. It, it the the topic never arose in our mm. family as as forever basically. Uh, I don't think any of us ever had such experiences or talked about them. Even in my extended family, it was just simply not a topic of conversation. Not that we were avoiding it, but it just wasn't a thing. It, you know, wasn't yeah. something that we talked about. Yeah, no, that that, that makes sense. I mean, not in my family either. Nobody was a yoga instructor, but it never came up at all. And until I came across, yeah, your book and things like that, and started to to look into it myself. Um, what would you say are your main areas of interest, like your your main research areas of interest at the moment, and and what have they been? historically as well i know there's loads <laughs> yeah I've, I've looked at basically anything that can be studied in in a controlled environment uh, right now for example i'm i'm uh, i'm interested in the link between mind matter interaction uh ideas in physics and experiments that can be done so i've been mm -hmm. that's what i've been focusing on but at exactly the same time, uh, I'm just finishing up a paper where I'm using uh, sentiment measures based on Twitter tweets to see if that shows the same kind of precognitive effect that we see in individuals yeah. at an unconscious level. So the, the idea of sentiment, of course, is a, a measure of happiness, happiness or sadness. And the way that you measure that within tweets is that you have a very limited amount of words, but you can assign an average degree of happiness to it. And of course, this is very popular among advertisers and so on are trying to judge the effectiveness of their advertising. They look at sentiment. Yeah. So, so there's a, a, a program at the University of Vermont that has been tracking Twitter tweets from the very beginning, 2009 or so. Wow. Uh, so there's 13 years worth of daily sentiment measures and then they have a plot where you can you can see how this varies over time. There's like a slow, slow changes in sentiment in 10 different languages. Uh, and then occasionally see a spike up or you see a spike down. So the spike ups mean are days that are particularly happy. Very mm -hmm. predictably, Christmas, 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 year after year, holiday, holiday, holiday. Along with that, if you're you're looking, you're evaluating what is happening to sentiment. As a holiday is approaching, you see a rise in sentiment. You mm -hmm. see people starting to talk about this. So that's all predictable stuff. It's not very interesting. 
What's much more interesting are the negative spikes because those are almost always unpredictable bad events. It's terrorism, it's earthquakes, it's shootings, it's things like that. And you can see then, you look at the curve and it's kind of going along and all of a sudden, boom. It takes a little while to recover and then it goes along and boom. So this then becomes very similar to the kinds of experiments that we've done in the laboratory looking at what I've called presentiment yeah. responses, pre-feeling responses. So it's not anything to do with conscious uh, feeling about what's happening. It's it's an unconscious response. So I thought, well, okay, well, since we have a daily measure of mood, essentially, a collective measure with millions of people, maybe if we do feel the future, as we, we see in the laboratory, that is what happens. But if this happens on a collective level, maybe a future negative event would infect us now and cause our mood to decline. So this gave rise to a method of doing an analysis where you're looking for trends in the change of mood over time to see whether that would predict that there's going to be one of these negative spikes. Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, the answer is yes. It looks like there is something like a collective feeling of the future that is changing people's moods in such a way that you can retrospectively see that mood is affected by a future negative event. And more importantly, that it might be possible to use it as a prospective analysis. So there are lots of people in law enforcement and elsewhere who would love to know that something bad is going to happen in a couple of days. Mm. And so part of the analysis I did was to see if you could, in fact, if you were tracking, and I'm using two weeks, I, I look backwards two weeks and then okay. look at the, the the trend, could that be useful in detecting whether something bad was going to happen? And the answer is yes. It's it's a small effect. It takes a lot of data to see this, but there is a statistically significant uh, effect that shows that if you're tracking mood and the mood begins to decline and it declines precipitously, mm -hmm. the likelihood is that five days later, something really bad is going to happen. Wow. And of course, the beauty of this is that people are not saying what they think is going to happen. They're talking yeah. about things in their life and whatever, uh, but it does seem to to be very similar at a collective level for what we're seeing on an individual level in the laboratory. So long-term interest in precognition, long-term interest in mind-matter interaction and lots of other things. Yeah, and lots of other things indeed. Um, in in those Twitter things, you just uh, I have to ask you a little bit about that. So, how many days, if if you're aware of this, and and if this was a, a pattern thing, how many days before the event, the the bad event, was this kind of neg inverse peak, this this drop in sentiment? Was there I'm a consistency to that? Well, the to make the analysis completely automatic, I'm looking two weeks before the, entire the current two day. Yeah, two weeks before the current day, I create a slope. Yeah. And then I stop the slope two days before the current day. Okay. So it's it's actually 12 days worth, but it goes yeah. back two weeks. And the reason yeah. I stop two days is because if you stop one day before the negative event, uh, because it, these are tweets in different languages. So like in, in English tweets, for example, you can have people around the world who are, speak, who are doing the tweets in English and because of time zones, something that we discover here in the United States could already be known in Europe, yeah. in which case they, they are already tweeting about something that we're going to discover the next day. So you yeah. have to go two days 
back in order to take advantage of, of the, uh, or at least to account for the fact that time zones, people learn things at different times. So there shouldn't be any advance notice two days before something like a school shooting. Mm. So, and by the way, regarding school shootings, it used to be shocking. In the United States, it's not shocking anymore. And one of the ways that you can see that is that it used to have a really big spike if something happened. Now there are school shootings on average two a day. They don't even show up anymore on Twitter. It's like, it'll be, you know, we don't know what to do anymore. So yeah. it's it doesn't even register, which is which is insane. It just highlights how awful it is, isn't it? When when you adjust to something like that, and that's yeah, it's as close to insane as you can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, back to the the Twitter thing again. Just uh, last question about that before we move on. Um, the the in terms of geographical regions, right? So if something bad was to happen in Africa, right? would there be more negative tweets happening in Africa, being tweeted from Africa? Or if it was happening in America, in North America, is, are there more tweets from within the United States? Like how did you see it? Did you either, did you look at that and did you notice any, any correlation there? There are three things that you want to know. First of all, when is something bad going to happen? The second is where did it happen or where is it going to happen? And the third is what is going to happen? Yeah. And and as from a law enforcement point of view, you want you need all three, because you don't have enough people to cover everything all the time. So the all I've done so far is look for when, and this is primarily because the measure, the sentiment measure is on, is per day, all all English tweets, all French tweets, all Spanish language tweets per day, without regard to geolocation, mm-hmm. and with, without regard to content. So it is possible to to do location. I mean, it's it's a much more complicated problem because now not only you need sentiment, but you need it on a per location basis. So you need to, to pull in these 100 million tweets and figure it out. So but this analysis that I'm doing now is simply that, is there an indication of something about to happen? Mm, okay. And and part of it is that the, the rest of it could be done. It's a, basically a computational issue. But yeah. you got to get people interested in the idea that this is worth doing, first of all. And second, it would take an enormous amount of money to mm. to ramp up a project to the point where you're able to actually look at geolocation. But I think it would be possible, in which case the question that you just asked, uh, if something bad happened at a particular place, which is usually the case, fortunately, mm. uh, as opposed to the entire world suddenly has something bad. Then yeah, you you in principle could be able to figure out when, where, and what, and then you could act up upon that information. Yeah, It'd be fascinating, wouldn't it? To cont- are you gonna are you gonna plan to continue doing more work into these Twitter analytics, or are you gonna pass it on to somebody else? Well, I, I'll I'll see if I can publish the paper somewhere just to see what kind of interest there is. But yeah. I I always have around eight different projects going, so I, I personally probably won't be able to do it. Yeah eight different projects going all the time you never get well, bored then but the, i mean this is it sounds like a lot but they're all in different stages so some yeah. are in planning some are in writing some are active in it you know that if i just did one thing most of the time i would be bored because you're waiting for something to happen yeah yeah no it's uh it's fascinating all that that 
that stuff with the with Twitter. I'm I'm fascinated by that. That's that's really really interesting, and and the fact it shows, like you say, the same thing that you see in the lab with sentiment is 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 brilliant because you currently get a bigger sample size than Twitter. Um, I was going to ask you which kind of uh, I don't know the exact word to use for this because we it's you know it's I'm still learning, but in terms of psi phenomena like telepathy, remote viewing, precognition, uh, psychokinesis, telekinesis, these different things. I was going to ask you which have shown that they exist kind of beyond reasonable doubt, but I suppose I'd ask the opposite in the sense that like, are there any popularly, uh, you know, popular types of psi phenomena that have in fact that you believe there's not good evidence for, or you believe that maybe in fact that they're, they're not real? Well, I, I'm almost willing to believe anything is real. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the of the evidence, I would say that yeah. macros- macroscopic psychokinetic stuff, uh, lots of stories about it, lots of claims about it, very bad evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet there there are some inklings to that too. So if you imagine that something like metal bending, metal 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 bending, is that is that a real thing? Well, I I've seen cases that look like yeah, it is a real thing. Is that the same as macroscopic psychokinetics? Maybe, maybe not, because maybe what's going on is actually at the microscopic level, and it does something to the structure of metal, and that allows it to to change. Mm-hmm. So for large-scale things like moving of large, massive objects, levitation, things like that, uh, I, I have not seen any evidence that would convince me that that is actually real. Yeah. And you mentioned it yourself, the the metal bending. I, it was something I was going to touch on later, spoon bending. So again, I, I guess from your answer, you haven't gone into any detailed experiments with that, but just kind of what are your general thoughts on this whole phenomena of spoon bending? Because I've spoken to some really credible people who say, yeah, that's pretty much a real thing. Like They haven't necessarily done the, the detailed experiments on it, but they've had firsthand experiences or they, they know people that have had firsthand experiences with that. Um, and the number of people that I've spoken to, yeah, it's kind of adding up, you know, the amount of people that I believe are very credible that have had experiences with that and that tell me it's a real thing. And obviously it's hard to wrap your head around the idea of somebody bending a spoon with their mind, you know, when we say it in words like that and, and mm-hmm. exactly what it is, like that's really hard to to process. But yeah, what are your thoughts on it? Have you ever done any kind of experiments in with, with it? Have you ever had any first-hand experience with it, either with people that have done it or done it yourself? Um, just speak for a couple of minutes by that, if you don't mind. Well, I've heard stories, of course, for, for many years of spoons and other cutlery and rebars and hunks of metal and things like that, which sounded mm-hmm. completely ridiculous to me. Even yeah. people who I knew and trusted, who who would like show me something, say, "Well, what? You, that's that's ridiculous. It's you, it's a matter of dissociating and not realizing how much strength you're using." So uh, that was my opinion up until one time I did this. Oh yeah, and and this was the the for at least for for spoon that the only thing that would have been interesting to me because. If you do something at the neck, it's it's easy to bend, right? Yeah. So I did this at a at a so-called spoon bending party where right. I went to watch somebody do this because I had no idea that I would, but nevertheless, I was sort of mimicking what I was watching somebody else doing, and then I did it. And the description is very much like people describe. It feels like putty 
and then it just bends over easily and then it hardens up instantly and that, there it is. So does it happen? Yeah, it happens. This required first person experience to convince me that what I've been hearing was not a complete delusion. It actually does happen. So I'm not sure that I would take the next step, which is I've, I've seen videos and I've talked to people who said they didn't even touch it and something yeah. happens. Well, I'm a little bit more inclined to believe that that may be possible simply because I did this. Uh, how that happens, total mystery. Yeah. Total mystery. So I, I, I don't know. Uh, if I had a guess, I would guess something's happening at the microscopic scale that at least in the case where, where you can then just pinch it and, and it flops over, uh, that the action is happening way down deep in, in the metal grains themselves, and it just loosens up for a second. And uh, the reason I say that, by the way, is because when you look at the bend, it's completely, it doesn't look like, if you if you got a, uh, pliers and did this to a spoon, it would not look like that. It would look yeah. fractured. And this yeah. isn't, it's completely smooth. So something's going on there. Uh, this is, and we've been asked to look into it in, in detail. Uh, as a project, and we've discussed it, and you know, I've had most of the literature that's been written on this. Uh, it would be difficult because it requires unusual states of awareness that are difficult to produce on demand in the laboratory setting. So the moment that you start loosening those controls, very difficult to know what's going on. So yeah. I tend to to do experiments that have very strong controls on them so that when you get some kind of evidence, you can make some sort of conclusion based on it. Because otherwise, we, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon, but if we can't figure it out, then it's not worth the time, really. Mm. Yeah, wow. Um, tell me, when you did that, when, when you did that with that spoon, so you're holding it with one hand and you kind of, you're, you're, you're concentrating, whatever, and, and you bend it, like, can you, can you just really briefly talk me through like how that process actually was for you to, to, to bend it? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at it at the time I was, I was holding it and I, and I, I was holding it in one hand and holding the tip of the, of the spoon and the bowl in the other. So it was, you know, my fingers were out like this. I was and watching. obviously you'd checked it. You'd, you'd kind of oh, checked yeah, I was that it's checking a... <laughs> to see that it was continually stiff, but I was mainly yeah. paying attention to the woman in front of me who claimed that she had done this at one time. So I wanted to see up close, you know, what's happening. Yeah. And then, and then I, I felt that something was different and somebody behind me said, Oh, look what you did. So I was looking around who, who somebody did something. No, no, look what you did. So, Oh, it bent around halfway. And they said, well, keep pushing. So I pushed it over basically did not take any strength at all. And I looked at my fingers, you know, what, what, what happened here? And it flopped over and it, and, probably within a second, it hardened up and it stays in this position. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe it's uh, nitinol, you know, the memory metal thing, or yeah. some kind of a prepared spoon. So I put it in boiling water and put it in cold and, you know, it's just a spoon that, that doesn't do anything unusual. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard to wrap your head around. Um, on, that, on, on that topic, do you believe Sai to be unlimited do you think or should i maybe rephrase like to the best of your knowledge does it seem like psi as of now do we have any idea of its limits does it seem like it has limits and i guess yeah what are your gut thoughts on it as well i, I don't think we don't know the limits uh the as the president of our institute 
once said that the the only limitations are your imagination. That's where your limitations starting is if. And I remember actually early on, way back when I was at Bell Labs doing these experiments, and I was getting results with random number generators, and I was saying that they, I I can't even imagine how this works. And a friend of mine said, "Well, that's your problem. Yeah. You're not even able to imagine how it works." And I, that was that was almost startling to me because I realized at that point that you you can kind of go up to the point where there's a, the boggle threshold, and if you mm. cannot get past the boggle threshold you're basically done. You're, you're living in the world of mystery. And I don't want to live in a world of mystery. I want to actually figure out what's going on in these cases. And in some cases, it's extremely difficult. But, you know, stretch your imagination, figure out some other way of of, of studying it. Because otherwise, you know, what, well, why bother to do that? That's the joy yeah. in any kind of, of leading edge science, by the way. And, and almost every scientist I know is interested in, in what's next. Because otherwise, you'd learn that as an undergraduate in a textbook. You know, why do you need to learn that again? We mm-hmm. want to know what what is the leading edge. And the leading edge, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty, and so you yeah. have to be comfortable with that kind of ambiguity. And it turns out, I am. Yeah. Wow. This is a. It's it's just fascinating. Like the fields you work in, there must be so much of that, and you must have had to deal with that for so long. You know, you you you've kind of grown in that, I suppose, in that, in that world of ambiguity and, and uncertainty and yeah. No, I've always been comfortable with it. No, yeah. I, it's partially that I, I realized that uh, there's this great phrase that Terence McKenna, the, you know, the, uh, the psychedelic uh, guru says that, um, or said uh, that as the bonfires of knowledge grow brighter, the more the darkness is revealed to our startled eyes. Mm. And that that's absolutely the case. The more you know about something, the more you realize how much you actually don't know yet. And so yeah. I've come to the point where I know a few things, but the remaining amount that is left to know is much, much bigger. It's, it's essentially infinite at this point. So yeah. it, it forces a kind of humility about wh- what you think you know and what, what you don't know that you don't know. Yeah. So, it's you great, know, I, I would rather know much, much more but realistically, we're, you know, we're tiny little creatures and on a planet in the middle of nowhere. And we're not quite as smart as we think we are. No, that quote definitely goes hand in hand with the uh, the idea that the more you learn about a particular topic, specifically the topics that kind of we're talking about today, the more you learn, the more questions you have. Right. Exactly. The, more, the yep. more you know, the more you want to know, the more unseen. As I mean, the quote says it better than I can. So I'll, I'll leave it there. But um which experiment that you've done that you've conducted in your career so far do you think would be the single-handedly most convincing of psi phenomena now i know of course it goes without saying that the whole body of evidence is the most convincing thing but like i say if you have to kind of pinpoint one um which one would you which one would you highlight do you think well if i had to pick one i would i'd probably say presentiment partially because the effect is pretty big I mean, it's, it's as big as what you'd see in a standard academic psychology experiment. Uh, and it's relatively easy to get. It's, a, it's relatively robust. And equally important that it's been replicated 48 times now in, in other laboratories by other people. And yeah. so the first time I did that experiment, I got this idea back when I was at the University of Edinburgh that I, you know, I was just thinking about how... How would you take advantage of 
the fact that most, maybe all of these experiences are bubbling up from the unconscious. How would you do that? Well, there are some techniques like subliminal perception and things like that. But I was thinking, well, maybe you could do it, use physiology as an indicator of something that was going on in your unconscious, but you're not, literally not conscious of it, not aware of it. So I thought, okay, well, let's let's give people, uh, present people with stimuli and look what's happening beforehand, which kind of matches people's experiences too, that they'll get a bad yeah. feeling about something, but they don't know what it's about. They just get that feeling. So at the first experiment I did a couple of years later when I had the equipment, the results were astoundingly good. And there is a first timers effect in this field as there are in many other fields. But in this particular case, the first timers effect was just whoppingly impossibly big. And, but never, you know, it was what it was. And I, I published it and colleagues thought this is interesting, but ridiculous because we don't see effects that big. But fortunately, others were able to replicate it and get results that were similar to it pretty quickly. And so I would say then that as a uh, as a class of experiments, it was um, gratifying that that what I saw was not a fluke, but is really an indicator that, yes, a lot of this stuff is bubbling up from the unconscious. You can measure the unconscious indirectly, and you can see these kinds of effects. So that's, again, having to choose just one. Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah, because I know that's not something we'd normally you'd have to do. Because the whole point of this is, yeah, they, to put together a massive body of evidence, yeah. which is what you've been doing, and which is what, as I keep saying in these episodes of, of Unraveling Universe, I keep saying that Dean Radin's book, The Conscious Universe, the <laughs> it does that. It puts it all together, and it shows, as you mentioned to me just before this kind of before we went live on on recording, um, it's a bit out of date now, maybe compared to your latest book. But yeah, it's a it's a fantastic read, absolutely jam packed, full of full of knowledge and full of evidence. Um, Dean, you kind of just mentioned or kind of hinted at just then, maybe something that you can use in the answer to this question. Wow, that's a massive mug. Um, what common everyday occurrences do people often dismiss as normal, but in fact are likely psi phenomena in action? Well, so an example is uh, is something that gave rise actually to the presentiment experiment. And the the classic example is that you you drive to work a certain way and uh, you've done it a thousand times before, so you're not really thinking much about it. You're thinking about something else as you're driving. And you know that there's a bunch of traffic lights along the way, so you're approaching one that for you is green. And so you, you're you accelerating a little bit so you'll get past through the, the intersection. But today you get a bad feeling. You don't know why. I mean, traffic looks fine. There's the people are waiting at the red lights, you know, it looks fine. So, but as you approach it, something doesn't feel right. You're paying attention to that, you slow down. And then you come almost to a crawl as with a green light. And then, just as you're about to go into the intersection, a truck who lost their brakes or something goes crossways across the, through their red light and would have hit you broadside if you hadn't slowed down. And you realize at that point that you're, you're feeling your discomfort may have saved your life because you felt something was wrong. So, so I've heard lots of stories like that, some more dramatic than others, but people talk about such things. 
So the presentiment experiment was a way of taking that kind of experience and putting it into the laboratory. Uh, other very common ones are feeling of being stared at, and we've done laboratory studies and that sort of thing. Um, telepathy, of course, but the, in the vernacular, telephone telepathy now is sort of a common thing, or maybe uh, texting, texting telepathy, those sorts of things. Yeah. I just had a bit of that with my mum the other day. Like I just sent her a text and she she replied, I was literally about to press the button to call you as I received that text. Right. Like, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, we've all had that happen multiple times probably, or, or most of us have had it happen, I would say a few times. It's uh yeah, it's a, it's a great example. Sorry, yeah. carry on. I just wanted to mention. Well, so those, so some of these are so common that we don't even think of them as being psychic and it could well be that it's coincidence. I mean, obviously, if you text somebody all the time, if you text them yeah. and said, oh, it's just going to text you, well, duh, that's, you know, <laughs> that that's simply the matter of statistics. So it's the very unusual cases where you haven't thought of somebody in 20 years and they suddenly come to mind and then you see, you know, they they suddenly are contacting you because they were thinking about you, apparently. Yeah. Uh, so the, those are the kinds of things. And then in, in uh, you find in business and in the arts, that people come up with ideas. They don't know where they come from. There are downloads mm -hmm. from the universe that turn out to be very successful in business or inventions or the next story that turns out to be viral, all of those kinds of things. So those are also very common. And in fact, when you study the study the biographies of famous inventors and composers and so on, all of them have stories which are somewhere between a mystical experience and a psychic experience, which they have repeatedly. And that, that they turn it, they are, have the creative ability to turn that into something which influences society at large. Yeah, it's an amazing aspect of this, actually, as well. Yeah, you're right. There are, there are loads of those cases um, of people that have had that. Um, do you again? Thank you. Thank you for mentioning those, because I, I just think it's really a fascinating thought, you know, that there's probably so many other little quirks of our everyday life and little things that we just dismiss as just yeah either just coincidence or just it's just normal or it's just you know nothing not important doesn't come up on our radar but in fact if we really dissected everything that happened within our day-to-day our -day lives for a for a month i wonder how many instances of of things you know that that could be at least that could be psi phenomena in action yeah we would find i think a, i think a lot but at the same time we need to think about the list of a dozen other things it could be mm, right yeah yeah so yeah, yeah. Th this is of course if you're you're a standard academic psychologist and somebody's telling you about their telepathic whatever what you would generally think of is uh it's coincidence it's delusion it's uh mis misremembering it's mm. elaboration it's confabulation it's you know long list Mm. all of which could be true, yeah. right? So even cases of, of uh, outstandingly unlikely synchronicities could be true. And of course, the usual explanation is that, well, there's 8 billion people having at least 1,000 experiences every day, so we're already talking about 8 trillion possible things. Well, Yeah, the law of large numbers. Yeah, and so strange yeah. things will happen. So it has nothing to do with psychic whatever. That's why... Uh, and I knew this very early on, that the, the coincidences do happen. Somebody's going to win the lottery. Uh, you have to go into a controlled environment in order to find out whether, in principle, actual psychic things can happen, where you're excluding coincidence, you're excluding all of the other explanations, and you find that it still does happen. 
So that means in the uncontrolled, spontaneous real world, we generally don't know what happened. Uh, yeah. But we know that in principle, yeah, it might have been an actual connection between people in ways that we don't really understand very well yet. Mm. And especially in modern society, where the vast majority in Western modern society, the vast majority of us dismiss these phenomena as as mere fantasy. Then, like you said earlier, if you if you can't imagine it, then then you're not going to see it, or it's not going to happen, or whatever. If people are completely dismissing these phenomena as, as not real, then they're not going to see anything that might happen. They're not going to think, oh, that could have been this, and and even just be inspired by the possibility of it, even if they never find out for certain. Right. Um, but this however. Question, Surveys do show that most people actually do believe that these things are psychic. So yeah. in some cases, they're delusional because yeah. there are other explanations. So, But nevertheless, from an experiential point of view, most people, the majority of people, do believe in one or more of these kinds of phenomena because it has happened really to them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I want to talk about it in public, especially yeah. academics or scientists, but nevertheless, it does happen. Yeah, they may deny it in public even, and but yeah, that's uh, that's an important thing to remember. This question has kind of already been maybe answered in that little discussion we just had about that, about kind of everyday experiences. But do you think that everybody has some level of psi? Again, the word I use here is hard to use the right wording, but abilities. Does everybody have some level of psi abilities? And then kind of a second part to that question, how can we unlock them or learn them? Um, I know meditation is potentially one way, but if you could talk a little bit about that. I think uh, every sentient creature not just human, but but animals, maybe even plants. That was uh, my next question. You just had some pre-sentiment. I was gonna. My next question was gonna be: Is it just humans or animals? Yeah, as no, well? it's not. So I don't think it's go. just humans. I, I think it is. Uh, I mean, one way of thinking about it is: all of these kinds of phenomena suggest that there are ways that we are connected that transcend space and time, and not just we, like everything. So, in the modern world, we can talk about quantum entanglement as at least at at the quantum scale, things are entangled, they're connected, yeah. and they're, and it transcends space and time. Well, that's very similar to what people describe experientially. It's as though there's an experiential form of entanglement. So from that perspective, yeah, anyone who's paying attention to these sorts of things would experience connections at, at distances through space and through time. And then we we would label it different things depending on how that experience is interpreted. So we'd, we'd call it telepathy if it involves somebody else's mind or intention or something, and we'd call it something else. So those labels are labels about the nature of the experience and probably not the label of what is going on. So telepathy is yeah. not a thing. It's, it's the description of an experience. The mm -hmm. thing itself, the mechanism might be something like an analog of entanglement or maybe literally entanglement as far as we can tell. So, so could anybody have the such experiences? Yes, I think the majority of people do at some point, one or another, have some kind of experience. Um, can it be trained? Uh, I would say yes to the extent that you can learn how to play tennis, but no to the extent that not anybody is going to be able to get to Wimbledon. Yeah. So there's something about natural talent that some people have and others don't. There are traditional methods, as you mentioned, meditation is one of those methods, psychedelics is another. There are, are traditional methods that will amplify our ability to pay attention to these things. Mm -hmm. And I think a very strong case can be made that 
we are shaped by evolution not to pay attention to these kinds of things because they become yeah. a distraction, except in cases where you're where like life and death, where your survival may depend on it. And then you become consciously aware, but fortunately that doesn't happen that often. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So any anything other than the ordinary state of awareness seems to improve our ability to pay attention to these kinds of things. But I, I think it's, it's basically happening all the time. It, and it's yeah. not even a happening. It's simply that is the way that the fabric of reality is put together. And sometimes we're in a context where we can we can experience that directly. Yeah, it's all just natural. It's just nature. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. It is what it is, as they say. Yeah, yeah. We just we just trying to understand it as much as we can as we as we go along. Um, I'm sure you've you've obviously done loads. Of, I know you've done loads of experiments with um, remote viewing and things like that. And I'm sure you've spoken to the subjects and and kind of had conversations anyway i get to the point i was going to say how could i if i wanted to remote view at home can you give me any kind of brief tips or, or are there any kind of key things that you're aware of that i should do to facilitate the ability to remote view have you got any kind of any words that you could say on that well there's tons of books and tons of training programs remote viewing is just a modern euphemism for clairvoyance yeah and so how do you do that? Well, you you quiet your mind, you, you turn off the, the monkey chatter inside your head, uh, and you don't you don't immediately go from an impression to naming the impression. That's mm -hmm. like all of the training is basically focusing on that notion that it's easy to, with eyes closed or eyes open, and you know that you're trying to describe something somewhere else. It's easy to get a, a, a momentary impression of something. So you're, you know, there's a target in the other room, and you're going to try to describe that, and you get this flash of yellow something. What most people will do immediately is saying, well, it's a rain coat because they're yellow, or it's a banana. That's what we do. And, and we're very adept at that, and it's happening automatically, and you need to stop that. And it's mm -hmm. difficult to stop that. That's why the, the instructions oftentimes are, you, you need to get into a meditative state where you, you're, you, you don't think about anything. Well, that's not easy for most people. Our, our minds are constantly working to, to describe what the world is like. So the natural remote viewers who I know who are really good at that sort of thing, through training and through natural ability, they're able to turn it off. They can turn it off in a snap. Like, boom, they're, they're there. They're in that quiet place. There's like nothing happening there. And somehow in that state, you're you're no longer in an everyday awareness state. Then the impressions that you get, you can get it as a raw impression. And a lot of the training involved then is don't get an impression, don't name it. Do it again, don't name it. Do it again, don't name it. Do a sketch, whatever. Eventually, you get to the point where you can start doing analysis and saying, well, you know, if you start putting together all this stuff, I, I get this, whatever that happens to be. So I originally thought it was a banana and then I thought it was like a raincoat. No, something completely different because of all these other impressions I got and you start assembling it together. So an expert will be able to do all of this be because of lots of practice. So be able to put it together pretty quickly. And they also recognize when they're doing the so-called analytical overlay they're naming it and they can recognize, oh, I, I'm naming that. I don't think that's it. 
And so you, you keep you go through this process and do it again and again and again. You get you get better at it. You're still not going to end up in Wimbledon, but you'll be better than you were when you started. Yeah. And I guess nobody should ever expect to to get a hundred percent record. It's, it's like I think you say in the conscious universe about the comparing comparing people in, engaging in psi experiments like this to to baseball. You know, nobody ever bats. I, I don't really know baseball, but nobody ever bats a hundred percent. Nobody nobody right. hits it out of the park every time. Yeah, in baseball, um, if you're hitting get a hit one out of three times at bat, that's world class. That's like whoa. Yeah, and it's it's going to be very similar then in this domain mm. that uh, you will occasionally get an incredibly accurate reading of something. And then you sit down saying, Oh, I got it. I can do it. I'm the world's best. And you do it in, you know, the next 50 times in a row, it's going to be a failure. So there's some, there's a lot of noise in the system. Yeah. And, and it's partially yeah. it's internal noise. It's external noise. It's all kinds of stuff that get in the way. Uh, but that, you know, for you, that's why you have to do lots of repeated trials to get confidence that it's a real thing. And the best in the world are kind of along the lines of a good baseball player or, yeah. or cricket or whatever. I mean, it's going to be the same kind of thing where the best people in the world are not going to be able to be 100%. And if it was 100%, we wouldn't watch sports anymore. Wouldn't be very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We could take any sport as well, right? Like NFL, the best running back or best wide receiver ever to play the game, still going to get three yards on some carries or, or still going to get tackled for a loss occasionally. Yeah. And and the, the best quarterback ever, again, Tom Brady, whoever you want to use, Mahomes, they're still going to occasionally throw a pick. They're, they're going to throw an interception. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's great to compare it to sports because it's just it's such an everyday thing that we that we think about and it's ingrained in society. Right. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. Really and so I, I've about. always been curious as to why, uh, like, uh, skeptics who say, well, give you a million dollars if you can demonstrate this thing, be psychic on demand. Mm. It, nothing works that way. Right. I mean, if you're asking yeah. for a hundred percent performance or even they would say, well, okay, well, we'll do a statistical test, but you still got to get a million to one. What, that, that's not realistic. That's why it's easy if you want to if you're you're doing essentially um, a performance where you want to prove your yeah. point and say you know do this and I'll give you a million dollars, except that the thing I've been asking you to do is impossible. So you know <laughs> well what what's going on here? Well, there's an ideology going on basically as opposed to what is really possible. They're not interested in what's really possible. No. No, unfortunately. Well, maybe maybe one day, hopefully soon, that's going to become more of a thing. We're going to actually have those conversations, what is really actually possible. I think if for anybody who actually is close to that level of reliability, of which I've never met anyone, they would be, their life would be in danger. They mm. would not, I mean, a smart person would not reveal that because it would yeah. be extremely threatening, not, not to the average person out there, but it'd be extremely threatening to people in government and business and law enforcement and everything else. You do not want to reveal that you have those that level of ability. Threatening and attractive. I'm sure there's lots of people in government and business that would want somebody like that on their team, right? Attractive for some, but as long as yeah. there's threat to anybody, there's a threat. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, so what do you do with it? Well, you don't talk about it. It's like Fight Club, yeah. right? If you're in Fight Club, you don't talk about Fight Club. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah keep it under wraps i hear about a few people like that from from researchers that say they know a particularly excellent subject that, that you know has been anonymous all this time and hopefully they're gonna you know maybe go public in a few years and things like that and i'm sure you know of loads of people as well along those lines um, not too many oh, okay interesting but i'm sure some yeah some some are quite good uh, yeah and even the ones who are, are really world class they're they're not hot all the time because yeah. because we're human too we're not machines so there's there are a lot of things that are going to push us around but yeah some people have natural talents and they're quite good yeah what would you say that the reality of precognition and all of these other phenomena but particularly i wanted to mention precognition tells us about the nature of reality you know it's probably stranger than we can than we can grasp not than we can imagine because science fiction does quite good in that sort of thing uh, I like uh, the the Dune series by Frank Herbert as an example of precognition is really the central element uh, of the story and presented in a very nice way that there in that case it's the spice that alters something about perception or the brain or who knows what uh, that becomes central for the way that the entire universe works right you can't have space travel unless you could do precognition wow um, so, so now I forgot what you what you asked because I was thinking about, I was thinking about doing. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> I was I asked about the <clears throat> what does precognition tell us about ah. the nature of reality? Well, but you kind of already answered it, so you don't have to go into too depth if you don't want. I've st we still got to kind of rattle few uh, through a few questions before I let you go in half an hour. So it's up to you how long you spend. If you want to wrap up that question, feel free. Yeah, what does it tell us? It tells us that the nature of uh, our experience with time is like everything else our perceptions it's it's a construction mm. we're constructing our experience of it so here's an experiment i want to do so if one of your listeners has a spare fifty thousand dollars or the equivalent to spend so we know uh from uh, general relativity that time and space are flexible and even the passage of time will be different depending on, on how close you are to a massive gravitational object so atomic clocks are so good now that if you take an atomic clock and synchronize it to another atomic clock and you put them right next to each other and, and uh, they will remain in sync for a very long time. I don't know exactly what, the, but something like years before they start going out of sync, probably longer. They're so good that if you take one and then you take a piece of paper and you put the other one on top of the piece of paper right next to each other, so a fraction of a millimeter, that the time will run slower for the one on the bottom than the one on the top. You think, well, well, why would that happen? Well, because this one's closer to the Earth, so there's more gravity. So the gravitational difference of a piece of paper will cause the clocks to run at different speeds, which, among other things, means that your, uh, your feet are younger than your head. So these are, are very tiny effects. It takes this very precise kind of clock to see that, but it suggests that if you used these two clocks that were now on the same level as best as you can you can get, but you target one of them psychically, could you cause it to for time to go slower or faster? Could you change the gravitational pull, the mass, all of that? Well, I don't know. I kind of suspect that the answer is yes, you could. Yeah. And so this would be a modern version of, of levitation, essentially, changing something about gravity at an extremely sensitive and small degree. But nevertheless, would tell us something like, yeah, 
something about mind is deeply linked into the nature of these fundamentals like gravity and forces of the universe, which I think actually yeah. is the case. But because we're not finding people who can levitate at will, this would be a secondary way of looking at that kind of phenomenon. And the mm -hmm. important point is it is testable. But calculated, yeah. it would cost roughly around $25,000 to actually make a system which is sensitive enough to do this. So it's not, you know, it's not like CERN where you need billions of dollars to figure these things out. It's cheap from a, from a research point of view, and it would tell us something very fundamental about the relationship between our awareness, maybe our psychic ability, and what we consider to be fundamental fundamental aspects of the physical world. Yeah. That'd be fascinating. I, I hope you. I hope you get that money to do that experiment soon. Like you say, hopefully somebody listening wants to to pony up for that. Yeah, or maybe um, we'll do a Kickstarter or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it'd be it'd be awesome. I bet you've got loads of experiments like uh, in in your mind that you've wanted to do for for a long time. Very long list. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna ask you about the, your, you know, your ideal one, no budget. But I, I don't know if we got time to get into it today because I imagine, yeah, you, you'd have to. Well, no, I, I can explain that. So it, it, occasionally, people said, "Well, you have an unlimited budget. What would you do with it?" I would not actually pursue experiments. What I would do is, I would, I would create a hundred endowed chairs for parapsychology in major universities around the world. That's what I would do. And, and yeah. the reason is, when you, you look at uh, what happened in the one place in the world where this was done at the University of Edinburgh, that one chair in the Kessler chair of parapsychology there created something like 100 doctoral students by this point, you know, after, after being around for a while. And that has changed the, the, the world center for academic parapsychology in the world. It is the UK now because of that one chair. So... This has also changed the way that this topic is perceived in the UK, because now there's lots and lots of people who have gone through and either gotten degrees or learned something, because I encounter again and again when I do lots of podcasts like this one, of people like yourself who said, I, I didn't even pay any attention to this stuff because I didn't, you know, mm. why bother? Because it's not real. Yeah. Well, it is real, and it's actually quite interesting, and students are interested in it always. So given yeah. the opportunity to actually study something about this, some small percentage of them would want to go on and create a career. And now you have thousands of people doing this kind of research rather than the roughly hundred of us around the world who are iconoclastic enough to be able to go ahead and do it anyway. That's yeah. how you make big advances in, in these kinds of complex issues. It's not waiting around for some genius to figure out something. It's yeah. getting a lot of people thinking about it. So yeah. that's what I would do with unlimited funds. Well, it's a solid answer because as well, in a, in a way, as you would say, it's kind of already proven the existence of these phenomena and yet still nobody seems to care. So yeah, we just need to infiltrate the the universities, get more people uh, aware of this stuff and and yeah, just keep pushing it, pushing it forwards. Yeah. Um, let me ask you to talk just again, just briefly about this next question because I, I don't want to take too long and I, there's a few other things I want to get to before I let you get away. Um, but healing, kind of energy healing or psi healing, um, what are the possibilities with that? Um, yeah, that's that's my question actually. What are the possibilities with that? Yeah, so does, does it work? Uh, so we've done yeah. experiments. There are a lot of other people have done experiments with Reiki and Joe Ray and a bunch of other things that are in that class. 
Does it work? Yeah, it works. Uh, it seems to work best for uh, alleviation of pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works for people who didn't have an a priori belief that it would work, which suggests that it's not simply a placebo effect. It's something else going yeah. on. Uh, it seems to work at a distance as well. There are very few studies really testing for sure that it works at a distance, but we've done enough an- analogs of those kinds of experiments in the laboratory to show that there are distant physiological interactions with people. Whether that was, was result in a healing outcome is a very different question. But one person's thoughts influencing another person's physiology is, I think, pretty well demonstrated. Uh, so would healing work at a distance? Yeah, I think it could probably work. Uh, it certainly works. It works for a lot of people in proximity. There's enormous amount of ideas about why it would work. Uh, at this point, I, th- I think most of them fit into a category of pure speculation. We use words like like energy, frequency, resonance, blah, blah, blah. They're very different kinds of words. They're They're talking about felt states not the mm-hmm. same words that a physicist or an engineer would use, which only complicates the issue, but that it produces measurable effects, especially for pain reduction. Yeah. I mean, we've done studies where we show that if a, if a healer is doing some kind of healing on somebody and they're wearing a little aliquot of water and the patient is also wearing an aliquot of water, they're not paying attention to that, but they're, they have it on a necklace while they're doing it. And then we look at the structure of the water before and after the healing, it changes. So there's some actual energetic thing happening mm. and something something happened. Uh, most recently uh, involved in a study where uh, we're trying to measure the biofield. So the healers will talk about some sort of aura, some kind of energetic what's it's around the body that they interact with in some way. So it had lots of different kinds of sensors in in the uh, in in the laboratory to see if we can pick that up. But I, my contribution to it was using uh, what in the old days would use random number generators, which produce random bits. Uh, we created something called a quantum noise generator, which is the source of randomness that is used to create a random number generator. But we didn't go to bits; we left it in the form of noise. So the voltages, essentially, that are based on things like um, quantum indeterminism, indeterminism, which is traced back to things like uh, electron tunneling, which is a quantum effect. So when you do that, we're, we're finding evidence that there's something happening to this noise, to the quantum noise that you see when healers do their thing, but you don't see if other people are doing it. So we're not seeing it like just an average variations in mental states, for example, you don't see much of an effect. But if a healer is healing somebody, you see a change. So it kind of suggests again, and if it's energy, if it's information, we, we don't know exactly why we see these effects, yeah. but it's there. It's, it's, it's like any sensor. I mean, you can have a, a sent, you can design a sensor that, uh, that senses something and you're getting indirectly a measurement of something. I mean, that's how basically all engineering and physics works. You're indirectly measuring something because we don't really know what energy is. We know what it does kind of, and we can use it, but we don't have a fundamental idea of, well, where did it come from? Where, what is it? That's beginning to change, by the way, largely as a result of understanding quantum entanglement better. Like the notion of space 
itself now seems that the leading edge says, well, no, it's actually an entanglement creates space. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Which means that it's probably all related to time in some way too. There's some fundamental way that the universe is put together that gives rise to these fundamental effects. So maybe something like that is going on, that whatever a healer is doing, they're manipulating something about space and time and information in a way that would cause somebody else's body to respond in an, in an appropriate way. I'm pretty sure that there is no injection of energy. You know, we, our, our image is there are force beams coming out like we see in the movies. That's probably not what's happening. What's more likely to be happening is that there's an informational change and that that is causing an internal effect. Like it's your, your own energy or your own physiology is responding appropriately. And so the, the metaphor I use, or maybe it's an analogy. So the, the analogy is that if, if I want to cause a change in you, I could take a heat gun and blast you with it. So external energy, putting it on you. And that would cause a, a physiological reaction. I can cause the same physiological reaction with almost no energy at all. I can just I can just come up to you and whisper just very gently into your ear that you just won the lottery. You won a billion dollars. The physiological response is going to be the same as though I hit you with a hammer. It's so, but the difference here is in one case, you need a huge amount of energy actually happening. And the other one is all of the energy is coming from the inside. It's your interpretation of a very tiny bit of information, which produces the same effect. And by the way, I think something like that is going on with any kind of psychokinetic effect. It's not imposing from the outside. It's doing something which changes the informational structure from the inside, because we're all saturated with energy all the time. All you need is essentially to turn a switch in the right way and the energy is released. Wow. It's fascinating. That, that's by Just, the way, that's I how mean, I think this works too, right? I'm not yeah. imposing anything into it. I'm changing something about the structure, the informational structure, and that causes us to behave in a very different way. Yeah. 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 You're, you're right. Same, same concept. No, it is uh, it is fascinating. It's amazing. Just just answer me in just kind of a word or a couple of words. Do you think it's possible that prayer, you know, a, different religions pray for, for normally for people who are sick, I suppose, people in pain or, or suffering. Do you think it's possible that what is going on there is essentially exactly the same thing as sitting in a room and, and trying to heal somebody? You think yeah. it, it, prayer yeah. is a form of ritualized intention. In the yeah, laboratory, I know there's been a few studies on it in terms of like, does it have any effect? And it seemed that yeah, it did, and it was very much not religious specific when they did those studies. Um, yeah, yeah, there are just studies on intercessory yeah. prayer and studies on distant healing without any religious context, and the results yeah. are variable. It's not clear at all that it works all the time, but you know, I I shrug with that response because nothing works all the time. It works sometimes. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very, yeah. especially intercessory prayer studies are very complicated, which is why I don't, I don't like to do clinical trials anymore. They're too complicated to do because especially in the case of, of intercessory prayer, how do you control? You need a control to have a comparison. Well, you can tell these people don't pray, don't intend, don't think about this stuff. Well, that's the, that's not thinking about the elephant in the room. You you can't stop that. So yeah. Again, I prefer to do things in a laboratory that are very artificial. They're not the real world, but at least we have some control over it. And even in laboratory yeah. studies, we don't really have that much control. 
we have a little bit no. and that that's how we gain confidence yeah um, let me ask you a few questions then from from external sources before hopefully we still have time to touch on just touch on survival and, and UFOs before we wrap this up. Um, so firstly, question from Dr. Ed Kelly, who, again, I'm sure you're familiar with these people. Um, I'm going to kind of read it in the way that, that it's been written to me because I, I didn't feel like I wanted to change it around sure. and form, form it into a, a question of my own. So his key book is really Entangled Minds, 2006, where he first made a strong connection with quantum theory. You might just ask him how all that looks now in light of subsequent developments, such as his own double slit experiments. Well, I think it's much, much better. In fact, in the, the last month, there's uh, there, there have been reports in the, in the science popular press and in journals of the likelihood that there's uh, there aspects of the brain that act in a quantum fashion. So quantum mind. I just published a paper on this topic as well. We know that at, at deep levels, every physical system is best described in quantum terms. So it is very likely that the brain is a quantum object. The question is, does it behave like that? So up until very recently, people are saying, no, it's too hot, it's too wet. It, it would destroy the quantum coherence that's necessary for the brain to operate in that way. Well, since the rise of quantum biology, that's no longer an issue. And we know that there are living systems that have all kinds of quantum things going on because while Quantum coherence might be destroyed in a femtosecond or less. That's what you see in a laboratory. This is a living dynamic system that could be recreating entanglement or coherence effects all the time. And I, I suspect are doing that all the time. In addition, it used to be thought that you could demonstrate uh, entanglement in pairs of photons, two photons, sometimes four, sometimes five photons. That's a completely artificial construct in the laboratory. In the real world, uh, and as experiments have shown, you could have a bottle that has a couple of gazillion atoms in it that are behaving in a quantum coherent fashion, like a Bose-Einstein condensate. So what is happening in the brain? Well, these recent papers are showing that uh, the hydrogen, uh, hydrogen in the brain through water, hydrogen oxygen, collectively looks like it has behavior that is very similar to what we would call entanglement. So take the next step and say, okay, imagine that there are aspects of the brain that are operating in a quantum fashion. That means that some aspect of our experience is non-local. Well, mm. isn't that what we call psychic phenomena? Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. we call it. And if, if your brain is operating that way, and remember, we're not talking about what is consciousness at this point. We're still talking about assuming that the brain is giving rise to at least what we call mind. You know, what gives rise to subjective awareness? We don't know. It doesn't even matter. That what does matter is if your brain is operating in a quantum fashion and my brain is operating in a quantum fashion and there's aspects that are non-local, could they interact at a distance and through time? Yeah, they could. We, we know that happens with photons. So why wouldn't it happen with us? How would we know that? Well, through our experience. Well, we call that telepathy and precognition and all the rest of it. So mm. does it do, do the experiments I've been doing involving double slit systems as a way of testing some of these aspects? Yeah, I would say that it's becoming more and more plausible that while we may not be literally collapsing the wave function, as, as von Neumann and others said, that you need some something like consciousness to do that, 
But it is showing a, at least at minimum another way of thinking about mind-matter interaction. That maybe we're manipulating the electronics in, in the interferometer. Maybe we're doing something else, but we're doing something. Something is happening there. And the reason why I chose that as a target system is because it is one of the simplest systems in physics that show a quantum effect. In that case, a quantum observer effect. So it's a it's a convenient system to use if you're trying to to study the nature of mind matter interaction, whether or not consciousness per se has anything to do with it. I actually think it does, but that's an interpretation of these results. Mm. Wow. And yeah, consciousness, you mentioned it there. We're not we're not talking about that now, but that's going to be one question that, or one discussion topic that I was going to talk to you about today. We're going to have to talk, do that one another time. I think that one's going to have to be left on the table. Yeah, um, let me ask you, yeah, it's one of those questions that you could just talk about for hours um, and get nowhere, maybe. Um, this one is from Dr. Kim, Pe Kim Penbethy. Um, she works with with Ed, as you yeah. know, at the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies. Um, I would love to have you ask Dean how he conceptualizes child savants and geniuses. I think this is a very interesting aspect of the concept of altered consciousness and or accessing global consciousness or information from past lives. And we do not often hear much about these incredible abilities. Um, so again, kind of what's your take on on that and how do you conceptualize? Well, I think, as I mentioned before, that it's it may not be that different than what people describe in meditation as a download or what artists or creative people do when they simply say, I don't know where this came from, but you know, Brahms has an idea or Mozart has an idea and they write down an entire symphony with no mistakes. Well, that, mm -hmm. that's, that's impossible. You know, how could that happen? It came fully formed, but there it is. Well, it probably, I mean, I don't know, probably. It, it might be similar to something like clairvoyance. Right. It's a form of intuition. We don't know exactly. We don't by by definition of intuition. We don't know how we know. So it's bubbling up from the unconscious somewhere. And since psychic ability seems to come from that place, it almost suggests that we have access to everything. Some people are quite adept at it. And so a savant, especially autistic savants, they're they they don't they're not dealing with the same level of evolu evolutionary shaping that causes us to only pay attention to here and now. They're able to pay attention to there and then. And so they and they express it. And so they come up with all kinds of incredible things. This may not be the same as somebody does something like lightning calculation. I'm not sure that that's psychic. It may be that uh, we, we reconceive the brain as a quantum computer, in which case, for somebody who's not worrying about a huge range of other things, like how do I get to work and you know, other things that a, an average person would think about, if their, their brain is attuned to a particular thing that they find to be interesting, and they could really focus on that, then if this is a quantum computer or it can behave in that way, well, it can compute way faster than a PC, just like as we're beginning to learn with quantum computers. So if, with throwing certain kinds of questions at these computers, it can give you an answer thousands or millions of times faster than an, than an ordinary computer, a classical computer. So maybe that's what's going on. So I, it, it's difficult to give a, a solid answer to these kinds of questions because there's so many different ranges of savants and yeah. genius. I mean, it's just yeah. like a huge spectrum of possibilities and probably then a spectrum of, of likely answers too. So yeah. sorry, Cam. No, I, you, I don't you get, really you, know. You, you, <laughs> 
yeah it was a, it was a good answer nonetheless one one last uh, external question um before getting to a few a few last ones if i can squeeze them in this one's from red panda koala he's a he's a youtuber he has a kind of ufo he, he does ufo documentaries researching aspects of the ufo phenomenon such as like you know old 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 programs within the u.s government or certain ways the media have handled the topic and a variety of different things anyway he did it he did also an episode um in psychic phenomena nina Kulagina or Kulagina um, and so anyway I recently spoke to him for my podcast and we kind of spoke about Sai and, and anyway I mentioned I'd reach out to him and get a question for you um, so he wanted to know to what extent do you think intelligence agencies were or are entwined or, or involved with Esalen and or the Institute of Noetic Sciences well some of the people involved in those places were certainly aware of government programs um, whether they continue to be is a question that I don't know the answer to because if they exist they would be classified and I'm, I don't do that anymore so mm. Esalen of course has evolved and Institute of Noetic Sciences has evolved most of the people involved in those places are either retired or passed away um, I mean the Ions, where I work, is is still very much interested in these kinds of phenomena, but we're not. We don't work with any kind of agencies at this point. I mean, we don't get any federal funding. We're not doing any classified work. Everything we do is above board. I I hope that there are some agencies somewhere who are tracking what we do. I kind of expect that that is probably true oh, around sure the world, not just in the U.S. Yeah. but around the world. Um, just to, to keep, are there people who need to keep track of of what what are we capable of? And usually from yeah. the point of view of, is there a threat, right? There's nothing that gets the yeah. government more interested in the possibility of anything, especially now as we see UFOs, is there a threat? Yeah, there's something happening and it could be a threat. So that's why money starts turning. In this domain, I don't know that there's actually much of a threat. Because even yeah. if even if you have really good remote viewers out there who can kind of do what a spy satellite does, spy satellites are way more reliable. I mean, they can't see inside something, but maybe they can at this point. I mean, who knows? When you have billions and billions of dollars to build things and put them up in yeah. space, maybe they could look through a building or something. Who knows? So I would suspect that uh, it would still be useful in cases that involve precognition because their best technology out there cannot do that yet. I mean, maybe by tracking yeah. social media, you can kind of figure out some things, as I was mentioning earlier. Uh, it would still be very useful to get a, a phalanx of very talented people who demonstrably can outguess the future. Not by yeah. not by being, you know, and predict what's going to happen in the stock market, but somebody who's given an, an instruction like, I'm interested in this thing, tell me about it. Like, if you're the psychic, that's all I'm going to tell you. I don't tell you anything yeah. else and you will give me information that is relevant to what I just asked because your psychic can figure it out. That would be quite useful. So I'm hoping that somebody somewhere has a program like that. And I've talked to a lot of people in, in the military and intelligence world who I know are very interested in this stuff. Whether they have a program or not, that I don't know. I just hope that they do because mm. it's useful. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, like you said, I'm, I'm sure they do. Um, it's probably lots around the world. Um, let me. So again, I, I, we're going to try and wrap this up quickly. And I, I know I need to, to to let you go as soon as possible. Um, give me your thoughts in a nutshell on the body of evidence for survival of consciousness. And I know uh, I'll just kind of preface it by saying I know that there are going to be some elements to that body of evidence that that you will say, and rightfully so, that they could be evidence for sci and they could also be evidence for survival um but i if if you could focus maybe more on the uh the stuff that's harder to put into a box of sci if you see what i'm getting at do you think there is a body of evidence that suggests survival what are your thoughts on that um well yeah. i'm conflicted about it because there there is the psychic confound in all cases if we knew the limits of psychic ability we, we'd have a better answer but we don't know the limits so this, this, of course, is the the whole living agent psi, super psi argument that's been going on forever. In fact, it was that argument that, that spawned parapsychology in the first place, because it started out with spiritualistic phenomena, spirits and things. Right. But it became psychic very quickly when you realize that a medium could be using clairvoyance or something to get the information. Even though they don't experience it that way, that could be how they get that information. So I'm, I'm agnostic on this question. I, I don't... I don't have a firm answer one way or the other. If I put on a different hat uh, associated with uh, my last book on, on magic, if you take a different worldview and your worldview is more along the lines of the esoteric worldview, which is idealism, then suddenly you could have sentience and intelligence and consciousness and an infinite number of forms, in which case could there be a non-physical, more or less invisible form in which there are creatures yeah you'd expect that has to be the case so we are one particular embodiment of consciousness but there could be lots of other ones from that perspective you can then say well yeah okay well maybe maybe uh the thing that i think i am what i call me the subjective thing maybe that really is like a point of consciousness and it happens to be embodied in this form and so when this form goes away consciousness remains whether it remains as dean is another issue you know the the, yeah. the metaphors are typically like william james and many other people have said that uh it's like looking looking at an island in the ocean well we know that really what's going on underneath there's a mountain it has lots of islands popping up it's all part of the same mountain chain they look separate they're not really that separate uh, or even better is the ocean is quite uh, uh, has a lot of waves today, and so it looks like there's all these crests out there. Well, they're still the ocean. They seem to be independent, and they have a dynamic ability, a, a dynamic characteristic to these waves. And maybe that's what we are. We're, we're momentary waves that arise in a particular form. We're not really independent from the rest of it. What's the rest of it? Consciousness with a big C. So this doesn't answer questions that are important about personality, which requires memory. Well, where does the memory come from? Is it stored somewhere? Is it is that the Akashic record? Lots and lots of questions like that, of which we have no answers. So that's why I remain agnostic. I think like, like most yeah. people, I would like to think that I will survive in some form. Um, but the, but you, you didn't take a very simplistic way of thinking about the usual way that people think about it i will be exactly the way i am now all of my memories everything else except they don't need to eat unless they want to and i won't poop and they don't have a job and i don't have to pay taxes well 
I guess. I mean, that's possible, I suppose. But I think it's very unlikely that something there would yeah, be some other kind of existence if there was any at all. Yeah, it's like like you said earlier about reality being a lot stranger than than not that we can imagine, but that that we can kind of visualize. Or I can't remember the word you used, but it's the same kind of thing. I, I assume what happens after we die on Earth, assuming something does happen, in my opinion, something does. It's going to be stranger than we can probably probably comprehend. It's going to be more to it, more moving parts and everything like that. I did I did want to talk with you, you know, about some more of the the aspects of the evidence for survival and kind of nitpick a little bit more and go through some of the harder, in my opinion, some of the harder to reconcile with with Psy, Some that I do think hold up as as evidence for survival but we'll have to do it in a in a hopeful next time um so the last kind of topic i'd love to just touch on again i know you have to get going very shortly is uh is ufos so i suppose in a nutshell it would be kind of what what are your thoughts on the phenomenon of ufos what do you think they represent or are um again they they have no doubt lots of different things but maybe let's say the the, the more extraordinary parts of that section of those of what they could be what do you think they are and what are your thoughts on any potential kind of crossover or connection with consciousness um yeah that's probably enough for you to to, to have a quick uh, quick talk about well that that's a four-hour conversation yeah right? i mean there, there's no easy answer to that it's very similar to the survival question is there is there an apparent overlap with something about consciousness and psi and ufos yeah I mean, that people have known that for a very long time. Uh, that means yeah. that it's not simply a complicated issue. It's hyper complicated, so complicated that we, we, you know, we're all flailing about trying to figure out what's going on. I would say that the, the, basically I'm agnostic about this, too, because I think it's extremely unlikely that we are the only intelligent creatures in, in the universe. The oh, question yeah. is, yeah. then, uh, are, are the experiences and and now evidence that's been outed that's been around for a long time is that evidence of extraterrestrial life here or is it evidence of other forms of life that have been here all along that they're we're just beginning to kind of understand at this point or at least detect i don't know i'm i'm i guess i'd fall into the category of uh jacques valet on this this is not a modern phenomenon it's it's of, you can see evidence of this throughout the entire historical record. Um, whatever's going on then suggests that this is not ET. This is mm-hmm. us. This is maybe not humans, but some other form of intelligence that has been around for a very long time. So maybe it's collective consciousness, as Carl Jung was thinking, or maybe it's something else. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's it yeah. it just it, no, it fits into the uh, the. The category of I'm not a fan of hardware type ET. That's mm. I, I don't think that's yeah. what's happening because the, among other things, uh, unless we we're really thinking about pretty wild changes to what we understand at the present time about physical laws, doesn't quite fit it too well. We we can certainly imagine other dimensions ways of manipulating inertia, things of that sort, which are are ideas that are floating around that that might be involved with that. Um, Very much similar to to the way that if I had infinite funds, what would I do? I would embed this topic in the academic world as well. So 
But yeah. so the UFO world and survival and psi, they all have taboos that prevent them from being discussed in a serious way by scientists and scholars. It should be openly discussed because these are phenomena that have been around forever. We're all interested in them, but you need thousands of people with millions of dollars of funding to make really significant change in it. So then the question is, well, well, if people have been interested in this forever, well, why don't we have that? What's sustaining the taboo? That's pretty clear to me. Religion sustains it. Uh, funding in science sustains it. And to a very large extent, governments suppress it. The status quo. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think all of the these con converging status quo forces, which don't want us to pay attention to that stuff, because it might disrupt the, the, the status quo. And in fact, it would definitely disrupt the status quo and people in power don't want that to be disrupted. So that's why this gets sustained as being something always on the fringe, which I think is a pity yeah. because it might be that if we welcome the ETs one day, because we're all open to it, that uh, we were given the book that says to serve man. If you're familiar with that that episode of the of the outer limits, it's a famous episode. I she see it there. So an alien comes to Earth and gives us all kinds of, of new technologies and presents and presents us with a book that the title in English is To Serve Man. And at the very end of the episode, it turns out it's a cookbook. And of course, that's that's the the the, the ending of that story. But up to that point, it was the Im implication was we're here to serve you. Yeah, mm. as our next meal. <laughs> so yeah. we, we don't know enough about it to make, make any sense of what's going on yet, but it's certainly interesting and probably is relevant to to all kinds of things. So, mm. yeah, I would with infinite money, I would definitely push all of these topics out of the fringe and directly into the mainstream and, and be able to talk about it in a serious way. I think they are creeping there. And I think that the last thing that needs to happen is for governments and, and big business to realize how they're going to be able to use it to their advantage, I think, and, and you know, how they're going to be able to keep the status quo as it is. But as you say, we're not we're not there quite yet. One last little tiny add on to that question, which and again, you can answer in merely just a word or two if you want, or just have you come across CE5? It's like a, a, a thing where they say that you're able to some people claim they're able to communicate with the ufos the uap the lights in the sky and or they're able to kind of manifest a ufo i'm not sure exactly of the details but this is the, the in a nutshell this is what it is it's being able to communicate with yeah uh, an anomalous light in the sky or craft and and have something happen have you come across that and, and if so what what are your thoughts on it in, again in, in brief i know you got yeah, to go i've heard of that uh i uh i i don't know what to make of that so is that is that a uh, psychokinetic effect? Because you know, like people call down the lights and then the lights show up. Well, what is that? I have no idea what that is. It's interpreted mm. typically in the form of an ET, right? It's a UFO. Mm. It's it's a spirit. It's something. What is it? I have no idea. Yeah, but you but you give some some. Well, I'd like a lot of a lot of strange things on the edge. I pay attention to it because. Yeah, either it's yeah. something that happens repeatedly. I mean, even in something mm -hmm. like a haunting effect, right? People report yeah. things and they happen in certain places. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with those kinds of things. So in my mind, I have what I can do. Like I can do certain things in the laboratory and I can study those things. 
And then you have this great unwashed paranormal out there of things that don't seem to fit too well, all of which are fascinating, but I can't really do anything about it other than just sort of be, yeah. you know, it's titillating. It's, it's the, the source of stories and stuff. So I enjoy yeah. it in that sense, but I, I don't really focus on it because I can't do anything about it. And I appreciate that because you doing what you do is is so valuable to to everybody, everything, every, society, and you're doing a massive, you're, you're massively involved in pushing this forward, and and it's a huge thing you're doing, and I really appreciate that. Just to finish off, then today, Dean, have you got any kind of last words, a message you'd like to send to people watching or listening, words of wisdom or anything, whatever you want? I borrow the words of wisdom from Joseph Campbell, a mythologist, who, uh, when asked by people students, young people, like, what, what should I do? Like, I'm interested in that. What, what should I do? The answer is always the same. Follow your bliss. So you're following your bliss, right? You, you, you're interested in these topics. You're talking to people who are, okay, you found a way to do that. That's what everyone should do, provided it doesn't hurt anybody else. And provided it, you, it doesn't cause you to offload responsibilities that you may have. But if you can find it, find a way of following your bliss, whatever that is, your passion, and actually use that as a way of making your living, then you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, valuable. Thank you so much, Dean. This was brilliant. I've been looking forward to it for so long, and, and this it lived up to my high expectations. Okay. So thank you very much. This was great and uh, enlightening and fascinating and fun. So yeah, Good. thank you. Wish you all the best. Right. Thank you for listening to my conversation with the one and only Dean Radin. I hope you took a lot from it and are now inspired to read some of Dean's books. I encourage you to begin with The Conscious Universe. Please see the description for Dean's links, our own links, and others to relevant books and other things. Please consider subscribing to continue unraveling the universe with us. Thank you.